0: House. This is Caroline from Daily Review.
1: This is Paul from Daily Review. And this is Mike from Hopper, Jordan. And we are talking about The Outsider, episode 4, El Coco. The episode was written by Richard Price, directed by Andrew Bernstein.
0: I'm so glad you had to say that title. Now, what does that title mean, boys?
1: There's the actual Spanish translation, which... I looked at a couple different things, and essentially it boils down to the boogeyman is coming, or, the boogeyman is on his way. Um,
2: <laughs> glad but, you asked. <laughs>
0: yes, super glad I asked.
1: But more importantly, and I think we'll get to it, you know, when we talk about Holly's story, uh, it's the name of one of the paintings she says, uh, she sees when she's Googling around for El Coco following her conversation with the prison lady at the end of the episode. And it's actually the name of a Goya print it was one of 80 prints that were published in like the late 1800s and it was actually named K V N A El Coco
0: gives me the willies just saying the
1: name i think anything said in like a real authentic accent yeah uh, like when that lady was talking about the story it, it has a lot more bite to it than when i'm giving like my very white <laughs> white man translation of what it means
0: hilarious uh, for
1: sure
0: um, okay so i just want to ask you guys overall without getting into any details at all i want you guys to tell me did you enjoy the episode not enjoy the episode. Give me just like a, just a quick like one-liner. What did you feel? What was your gut on this one?
2: I felt it was a very full episode. We haven't had this happen so much, but it kind of reminded me of that sensation we had in a few lost episodes where you just felt compelled to rewind it a little bit and make sure you understood what you just saw. That, that's a good thing. I like TV that, that makes you do that.
0: I like, I like that, that classifying as like highly rewindable. That would be like how I would I would also classify this episode. We definitely stopped and rewound a couple of different times, and uh, I appreciated that there was a ton of movement in the plot and a ton of movement in understanding all of our characters a little bit more. What about you, Mike?
1: You know, it was the meal and the dessert. Not to cop a phrase from the episode, but it <laughs> uh, you know it took me over two hours to watch the episode because I stopped and I went back so much. I was googling up things. You know, what does this mean? It was the first episode where. I felt you really had to watch every minute, every, every minute of the episode, or else you missed something that was, if not important, at least interesting.
0: It was chock full of information. So we're going to start off with Glory and the girls. We left them in last episode where they had been asked to leave school. We all expressed our outrage over this. This sucked. And it was, you know, proposed that perhaps she homeschools. What did you guys think about this interviewing of the homeschool teacher and did it turn out like you guys thought it was going to or was it a shocking twist there?
2: I didn't see it coming and and I applaud Glory for having been around the block on this a couple of times and knowing how to suss out a journalist or whatever, like just give him fractions. That's like it, <laughs> the, the test.
0: Dude, it would out me in about a, one second, <laughs> even though I'm a teacher and I've had many years of homeschooling. If you gave me a fractional like equation, I'd be like. Mm. Can I like take a lie detector or something cuz I just don't want to do she math. She like
2: she like throws her purse out and yells, it's, "Find the common denominator, bitch." <laughs>
0: <laughs> the LCD, yeah. ass. Right. That's awesome. I, I was impressed
1: that. that she I mean, I guess it's a, a hat tip to how on guard she is right now, but I don't know that I would have looked at the postmarks where where ship was mailed from and, and noted that. You know? Um, she's
0: very, yeah, very game, savvy yeah. yeah for sure she obviously she's in protective mode sure. she reminds me a lot of carrie coon's character in the leftovers paul like i feel like she's very has mm. that like you know hackles up mm-hmm. and like ready to nora out on anybody like remember when she like knocks over a coffee and stuff in the coffee shop like i feel like glory could do the same thing like they're all kind of watching her the whole community is kind of whispering about her it mm-hmm. Feels really similar.
2: I didn't pick up on that, but I could see it that way, yeah.
0: So then we move into Glory having dinner with Howie, and they have this whole, you know, at first this idea of like, well, you know, you're you're cool to stay in town, like it's fine, everything. What would you guys have done about this man at the table basically heckling?
1: I, I think his heckling was fine until it turned to outright threats. I mean I mean Howie was right to stand up. He threatened her children, which seems the wrong tack. If you're if you're going to you know, attack Glory for showing her face in town for something her husband is accused of doing, her dead husband is accused of doing. It seems very Trump America to then go threaten to kill her children in retribution for it. It seemed very, very aggressive in a highly illogical way.
0: Very, very sinister. Like, no matter what, I would feel like anyone where there's just been a kid murder who Threatens killing a kid is like really not understanding what's going on in the room. Like, hello, someone just killed a kid. Don't don't say you're gonna kill a kid. Not cool. Too soon. Too soon.
1: I had a question about the scene. I, I mean, I'm glad that Howie stood up to him, but you know, his wife was very much right to be like, Howie, you're going to get killed. Like, Howie is not in the physical uh, <laughs> fitness uh, department not. to step to that, but. What was Ralph uh, oddly also doing in the restaurant? Because he was not at dinner with them, but he was in the restaurant, as it turned out. Because he's the one who then comes and walks that guy out, you know, kind of strong arms him out and says, if he even looks back, he's going to tear him apart. That's Ralph, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's just a coincidence that, they, that he was there.
0: He could be reasonably kind of keeping an eye on Glory. Like, that yeah. wouldn't be nuts.
2: At this point, I believe he, he feels like he owes her something. She won't really let him give her anything, talk to her, try to even try to solve this crime with her help. So this is the best he can do is usher out assholes that threaten her at dinner.
1: There was a conversation on Reddit today. I didn't give this a lot of credence because of the, the way they were uh, attacking it. But they were comparing Glory to Skylar White because the point they were trying to make was that her impeding Ralph tr- from trying to fix this is actually doing more damage. You know, there's a lot of Skylar White hate out there, uh, and I think there forever will be, but I thought it was kind of unfair. I think, I feel like Glory is very much within her rights to be as angry with Ralph as she is and trying to impede him.
0: And I don't know that she is actively impeding him in investigating anything. I think that, you know- She can't
2: look at his face. She can't stand to see him or be around him.
0: Right. Right. But not allowing, I mean, I'm assuming that they're referencing not allowing him have like direct questioning with Jessa just because he asked. But honestly, I feel like why would you trust him? I mean, look what he did to your husband in public. Why would you trust him with your little kiddo? That's just natural. And I don't think she's out of line at all.
1: I 100% agree. Yeah, he is the, if not direct cause, he is the proximate cause of her husband being dead. You know, Absolutely. squarely, the way very he squarely. It. The way he handled it, it very squarely sits on his shoulders.
0: I believe so. so. Yeah. You know. Well, let's get into Ralph and what uh, hijinks he was up to this episode. He had a lot going on as well. When do we first
1: see Ralph? We first see Ralph tonight after Holly's already been doing some investigating at the senior center, and she learns about the uh, the Heath Hofstetter running into and tackling, or you know, knocking over Terry that gets on the phone call and then that gets Ralph thinking about the scratch. And uh, this seems to trigger something, uh, a memory in, or an idea at least in, in Ralph's head.
2: Yeah. So he spends a few scenes getting permission to go to the GBI place sitting with the gbi guy sitting with another gbi guy and at the end of it all i didn't see what looked like a scratch i saw what looked like very pixelated vhs quality security tape zoomed into the point where you really couldn't make out details anymore did you either of you see anything that resembled a scratch happening
0: the only thing i could think of is that it was the moment of just contact that they actually had skin-to-skin contact in that moment. And so the way that Ralph kind of presented it to Claude, like, you know, and then that part when he came in and he scratched you and then blah, blah, blah. And Claude's like, he scratched me. I kind of like wanted to listen to that a couple more times like where it was like, is he questioning? Is he keeping it to himself? Was it like, it was so light it didn't matter? Or was he like, no one scratched me?
1: I think what triggered him wasn't that we saw the scratch necessarily. There is a black dot on Claude's hand, but I think it was the motion the way that Goo Terry had gripped Claude's hand, the frame by frame going back and forth, it showed a motion okay. that wasn't consistent with shaking hands. So it like was, a
0: dragging kind of motion was, as opposed was to like, like
1: a shaking. Right. It was like a swiping motion that I think he was picking up on. Okay. And if you look back at the pilot episode during the Claude scenes and they're looking at the video of that, Claude very much looks down at his hand after Terry walks away from him. When Terry walks past him and goes to the bathroom to change, Claude has like a kind of like a surprise shock look on his face and looks down at his hand, which we didn't really understand what that was at the time. But it's a nice detail four episodes ago or three episodes ago. Uh, that we then kind of got a little bit of payoff with now.
2: If, say, for the sake of argument, this goo entity needs to get a sample of blood or DNA or, or, or something from a, a new person in order to kind of take their form, perhaps the, the Claude scratch was sort of aborted. You know, it didn't work out because as far as we know, Claude is clawed and, and there was not any time between terry and whatever's happening now for this thing to become goo clawed
0: we don't really know right i I wouldn't i I don't know how long it takes for him to actually transform and i don't know maybe he has a sample now of the dna and he can use it later i don't know does he have to transform immediately after getting the scratch
1: i'm working on a whole theory in my head that i started playing with last episode and I think, at least wasn't disproved in this one, about the scratching and the taking the appearance of idea. When you you think about what we've seen so far, we've seen two people scratched. uh, We've seen two, or at least maybe we've heard now about two doppelganger reports. And then there's this other category of Jack and whatever Jack is, either he's possessed or somehow being controlled by, you know, the goo entity. But I'm hesitant to bring it up right now. I want want to see if I can build my case a little bit before uh, before I bring it up. But I would call your attention to the fact that the conversation with Claude, if you guys think back to that conversation, because we talked about it when we talked about the first episode, about Claude being a holy roller uh, and close to God in that Mm -hmm. episode. I think that is an important detail that we kind of laughed about at the time, but I think may become important.
0: Well, because we said he's as holy as you can be and be like the manager of a strip joint.
1: But in the conversation he has when he first sits down in the interrogation room, we laughed about it because we didn't take him as being sincere. But I think he was maybe being more sincere than we had actually given him credit for about mm. turning his life around and living on the right side of God. And the conversation with Maria and Holly at the end is is what kind of got me, me playing around with that idea. Okay. But we'll get to that later when we get to Holly and Maria.
0: Okay. Well, are you guys ready to go to Holly or is there more of Ralph?
2: There's only a little bit more... Uh, of Ralph um, where he's party to the car thief and his sketch of someone with uh, facial parts in the wrong place.
0: Do you yes. think that Ralph absolutely recognizes this or draws the connection between Jess's description of a melted messed up blurry face and this drawing?
1: I do. I think so and I mean for the viewer anyway I thought it was actually a really good drawing of the goo Terry that we saw outside the courthouse when Terry got shot, actually. Uh, It was actually pretty dead on melted face version of that guy. I didn't, did you, did you think we were going to see Merlin the orphan again? I didn't know that we, I didn't think that we were going to see him again, especially since that means he really traveled a far distance to, to get down to Georgia to talk to Ralph. I was actually surprised that that came back. I wasn't expecting that.
0: I wonder about, you know, the idea of this good and evil and being motivated to, either sort of be on the side of the good or the side of the evil and when you have people like Jack who seem to be helping the evil and then you have someone like this the car thief boy who seems like like, even when he's like kind of does like sign of minor wrong things he still really wants to be on the right side of everything so the idea that he comes back feels right like in terms of helping the good side.
2: He's not a bad kid. He's, he's a car thief, but only because he was running away from uh, a bad stepdad situation. So he's, he's actually more of a, a self-starter. Yeah, he's an entrepreneur. <laughs> he thinks outside the box. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, but he's not a bad guy. He's not,
0: he's not evil. Not, no. He's not evil at the end of the day. No,
2: he's not. Speaking of evil, uh, one guy kind of running on his own track this episode seems to be Jack, the third detective in in town his actions kind of remind me of what's the guy's name Renfield in, in in Dracula the the guy who has to help the monster in order to I guess fulfill his point in the story so that's what that's what Jack seems to be doing with purchasing these things what do you suppose he needs to purchase lamps and sleeping bags and and all that for
0: well, it definitely seems like he shot the deer and left him out for food for Goo Man. And then I, yeah. I didn't know Goo Man cared about like creature comforts, but apparently he wants like better lighting and he wanted like some organization and, you know, that kind of stuff. Like apparently he cares about his digs. Um, and so he wanted something a little bit better. I would like to point out to you guys, I don't understand why Goo Guy can't like finish off a carcass. Why do we always have to see them with like three bites out of them? Maybe he'd have to kill a lot less if he would eat up and just, like, suck all the bones dry. Why you got to just take two bites and then call for more death? Hey,
1: he, might be, he might be more of a a bouche kind of eater, though. Maybe he's you know, like he eating just,
0: their heart out. Is it something else uh, like that?
1: No, I think he's just into tapas. I mm. think he just likes small plates, you know, and <laughs> he doesn't really want to overindulge. You know, he, he, his, mother, his mother, pro- mother probably taught him, always leave something on the plate, you know, be a little dainty.
0: He left like um, seven eighths of that damn deer.
2: <laughs> I think it's contempt for the for the kill. I think it's uh, it's like disrespect and, and leaving the body like that. In in all cases, you know, like I took what I needed. There, you know, whatever. Think of other cultures that that take care of what is the like Native, Native American, American phrase, right? And the they they use every part of the buffalo or whatever it was. Right. So this is the opposite of that, and I think it's I think it speaks to just blatant
0: disrespect. Is evil and disrespectful? Mm -hmm. Jesus. Mm -hmm.
1: I I had a theory about Jack, uh, which then I I kind of changed at the end, so I don't know what I want. I think one of these two things are true. One, I think it's interesting that we got to see what a crack shot that Jack really is, which is potentially very dangerous for other people in the show. I mean, that was a dead-on-heart, you know, single Mm. shot uh, to take down that big buck.
2: Chekhov's hunting rifle?
1: Yeah, for Mm. sure. I mean, we got to see him do the aborted boar hunt a couple episodes ago when he got the phone call. And he never got to shoot his boar, which then Goo Man ended up eating anyway. But this time we actually got to see him take the shot and he takes down, you know, that big buck in like one shot. But then he loads up the buck and he dumps it somewhere else. He dumps it in the woods, right? He shoots it dead in the, in the clearing and then he loads it on his truck and then dumps it in the woods and then drags it. That, that's what that scene was. Right. And then we yeah. see him at Walmart and he's buying all these random things. Like I made a list of what I could tell. Did you, I mean, he bought, a bunch of sleeping bags, he bought two lamps, he bought a stand-up lamp, he bought an air pump, uh, a gas can, extension cords. Uh, same th- I was thinking the same thing as you guys. What is he doing? But did you notice there was a sign in the Walmart that said, smile, you're on camera? Mm-hmm. So after that, I started thinking he's setting an alibi. He's putting the deer in one place from where he shot it so that it could be located there. Like, I shot that deer here. And then he's putting himself on a lot of camera, like Guterri did, uh, to be all over the store, picking things up and, and you know, randomly buying things. The problem with my theory is then he dumps it all in the woods. So then I was thinking that it's a offering, that then the deer maybe was just an offering, but maybe it's a combination. Maybe the deer was the offering and he had to do something with all the crap he bought for an alibi. But I think he's building an alibi uh, for where he was when something bad is going to happen.
0: See, I think it's a hundred percent offering. That's why I was just joking that like, does goo man need all these creature comforts? Like why does he need lights and sleeping bags and all this shit? Like he's a goo man, but I think it's all to him. It reminds me of in stranger things when they go out and put food out for 11 and stuff like that's that. That's what I thought. The same thing it feels yeah. exactly like that. Like it's just like he lives out in the woods and he needs somebody to go into the stores and places and bring him food and bring him supplies and stuff like that. So that's what Jack does. But it does put Jack on camera and for sure I think that it's Goo Man who's doing it to Jack. I don't think Jack's creating an alibi. I think Goo Man no, no. is putting yeah. Jack out there.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry, yes. I I think on Goo I think on gooman's Man's orders or control he's doing that. Just the way the camera kind of lingered on that smile you're on camera yeah. shot. Um Well to and create just- that
0: same confusion with Jack. Like something's definitely a crime's definitely gonna happen. Jack will be accused, and then now we have this confusion.
2: So we're pretty sure that this is not Goo Jack, this is just. It's
0: like precursor sl- to Goo Jack. This is this is
1: Control Jack. Yeah, this
0: is, controlled.
2: Because the scene with Tamika, if you recall, in the hospital, you wouldn't have guessed, but he was like, "Give me that baby," and then, and then he held the baby and made baby sounds with the baby and did very baby things. Um, with, Uncle
1: Jack. Yep. Yeah.
2: yeah. And here he he won't even like pipe up when she's talking about her quote unquote baby party. So gigantic personality changes are kind of a hallmark of a goo infestation. So that makes me kind of wonder if this is a, a goo man or if this is just... He's he's so focused on his goo mission for the goo creature that he can't be bothered with other other thoughts.
0: See, I think he's like mid-transformation because... I feel like the fact that he brought up the arrest paperwork, but it's like he didn't know how to fill it out. Like much like in other scenarios, the goo man doesn't know who the person's name is. So he he just smiles at them or whatever. He tries to just like play along. I feel like he's Uh like he's still some part of him still Jack and he's still trying to do some of the things he did. But he's like midway. So he can't fill out this arrest form because I don't think he knows how anymore. And like Tamika's party, like even though she's yelling right outside the door, he wasn't like drawn to go out there because, like, to him, she's like a stranger, you know. Like, but Jack should go out there, you know.
2: I wonder if goo creatures know how to read. Mm, what a goo Literacy is a, is a big push in the goo community.
0: Do you think it is? I don't. You don't? I don't. Yeah. They just care about more primitive things.
2: Yeah. They're, they're, since the, they care about leaving carcasses wherever they, they go, reading isn't a, a big priority.
0: They're more about, um, like, like sim- symbolism, like you know, leaving the carcass behind. Like they're all, they're about symbols, not about the words.
1: It's
2: it's a higher form of communication,
0: really.
1: <laughs> I had a I had a different take on the on that whole scene. I would agree that he's weird with Tamika because he's you know now being kind of controlled or whatever. But following along with my my wackadoodle tinfoil theory, I think that's Zakaya H. Harris with the blank report. I think that is the victim that he is going to eventually kill. Uh, mm. I think that's part of the alibi he is setting up is to kill this woman and somehow like backdate it. I, I think I, I, why linger on that name for as long as they did on the computer screen without it meaning something and a name that we haven't seen. And it's, it's a name that you'll remember, you know, Sakaya H. Harris, just the middle initial loan. I don't think we're done with that file report. I think that's why he was confused or looked confused by it because he doesn't know why he was opening it but i don't i think we're going to be revisiting that at some point so
2: not only can he read but he does research
0: <laughs> this goo man has got more depth to him than we thought
1: i mean the goo man's well good uh, well traveled if nothing else he is
0: he gets around that's for sure so that's definitely what we learned in holly's story is how much the goo man has gotten around were you guys relieved to get so much backstory on how this was was actually traveling from person to person because we had a really nice long journey of where this hand scratching back scratching virus trail went did you guys it was like only,
2: it? i did it was only but it was only really possible because she had a completely open mind, which living in the real world people would have a tough time doing, but for the story, someone with a Just like a blank slate, you know, like willing to just take whatever information comes in and follow it. That's what she did. She saw a pattern that no one else would be willing to even consider.
1: And she was willing to listen to the bartender's advice about where, you know, where the first guy get the infection. You know, the when they were playing out the uh, murderers is a virus uh, metaphor.
0: Right. Okay. so let's let's collect up our information that we got. So Holly Figured out that um, it's Heath Hofstetter, and we find out that he's in the same position where he was on vacation, and we have all kinds of eyewitnesses and know exactly where he is. What did you guys think about um, how Holly got the information from the receptionist and that whole false start with being, you know, a reporter?
2: Yeah, that that kind of dogged tenacity of, well, I'll just wait and follow you home. That that seems like that's the kind of person that that Holly is very dedicated and just will will keep finding answers. So I think it's super in keeping with her character probably outside her comfort zone to approach somebody like that but getting the answers is more important than living in her comfort zone to her. So I
1: I was just impressed that Holly was able to go from being pepper sprayed to complimenting, you know, Angela's uh, apartment uh so so fast. I don't know that I would have been so generous to the woman who just pepper sprayed <laughs> me for no reason. You know, um, there were like, yeah. a
0: couple one liners in this one that I actually really liked and can appreciate the writing for when the receptionist called it post-divorce piss poor modern. That was her design aesthetic. That's mm. hilarious. Um, and Claude had a good one, too, when he was like, I'm just going to need a minute. Mm, now I'm completely relaxed. <laughs> like, I was like, that was really funny. Like they had some actually like one liners that I wasn't expecting in here.
1: I liked it when at the end the woman asks uh, Holly if she's the devil and Holly kind of laughs and says, do you want to see my driver's license? I thought that right. I thought that was pretty funny. Right on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> funny. So, okay. Were we, was she lucky to find this receptionist? Was this believable that Holly could actually find someone to be an ally and, you know, be so cool as to like, not only give all the information about Heath, you know, how lucky that she happened to be friends with Heath and happened to work there the last five years. And, Was this all too easy? Should she have had to go to a couple different employees? Or were you guys glad that it was just like the first one that she had to deal with, was willing to tell her all this stuff, willing to open the back door for her, all that?
2: That's a lot. Because if I were approached in the same situation, being asked questions about a convicted killer, that I was confused about the case, but more or less it was sort of a done deal. He was already in prison. After the explanation of who she was... Then I think I would talk, but Mike, what do you think in, in, in uh, from a legal perspective? Do people give it up to, to to PIs so willingly?
1: I think Holly earned this woman's trust. She took the pepper spraying and was still willing to tell her that she was a PI, not a reporter. Again, I think it was I think it was a sincere, dogged determination that kind of opened the door. And then I I, I think Holly came off sufficiently searching for answers, but not in a sensational kind of way that Mm -hmm. I I, you know, I I almost feel like Angela probably wanted to talk about this because she seemed like she was so close uh, to uh, to Heath, which didn't seem weird to me if they had worked together for so long. And normal Heath not goo Heath was a chatty guy. um, They probably were good friends. And so it seems to me, if she believed Heath was innocent, she would want to unburden herself to someone. And Holly as much as anyone comes off as a sincere person you can talk to about things. So I guess it, my, seemed, it seemed burnt to me.
0: No, my, I guess my question is like just a little bit different than that. As a viewer, is it just like what luck to find the girl that happened to work five years with Heath and was friends with him and was willing to talk? Like, should she have had to go through more employees than just one in order to find either the information or to find someone who is willing to talk?
2: That brings up kind of just like, you know, I guess they got to keep the plot moving, but the 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 idea that she could come into this elder care memory care unit and the receptionist was so knowledgeable at all, like she knew shit about Peter Maitland's case at all. I mean, is that really a, an expected thing that the receptionist would know that stuff?
0: I wouldn't think so. They barely can tell you where the coffee is. I know. They certainly so, don't read the medical charts of the patients there. <laughs> exactly. No one's like, hey, shit, did you see Maitland went downhill? Like, I don't think they're talking S- Someone about go
2: tell the receptionist.
0: <laughs> right. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm just wondering if, if, if Holly should have had to collect this info from a couple different employees or at least go through one or two to find somebody. Like, maybe someone sees her get yelled at by the receptionist and ends up, chasing her out to the parking lot and talking to her. And, and you know what I mean? Something a little bit well, more, she, like did.
1: she just I mean, fell she, she did really. No, no, she, no. She was, she was a she different, was, different she, employee. It's uh, different.
0: Like for it to all fall on one person and she has a postcard from Heath and you know what I'm saying? Like it's an awful lot of information in one person's hand, in one character's hand. Do you know what I mean? That Holly mm-hmm. can get the whole story from one receptionist.
1: You know? True, but, but and I, I thought of that also, but I thought of it in this way. Holly proved herself to be so dogged that she was going to get the information. So if she had to talk to three or four people and get little bits of information, she would have gotten it. So is the good drama in watching her do that or get the information that she would have gotten anyway and move the plot along? So I, I think it's a storytelling thing, which was the more interesting thing to see. Her learning information, which she would have gotten or watch her get the information that she is going to get anyway. This way, she gets all the information she needs and she can kind of move on from Dayton, you know, after spending an episode and a half there.
0: I guess not knowing what other clues and what, the, what what the rest of the story is. At this point, I guess I can, you know, I have to trust the storytelling that it's like, no, don't worry, there's going to be like so many more, you know, exciting moments that we had to speed this part along. But just generally, no, I mean, I think that the majority of audiences actually enjoy treasure hunt that is collecting the clues so if you think about any other show you ever would have watched if perry mason had to only talk to one person or if angela lansbury talked to one person and they had all the clues and all the information we'd all say what a dumb show she just talked to one person you know i'm just saying that like in in this case i'm going to say there's so many other things that are going to have to happen that i'm cool with it and i'm glad that holly had so much and we got so much quickly here because there was a ton that happened we actually got to get to the next. What do we call them? I don't know. Victim or accused or what do we call them? Oh, no. We,
1: yeah, we moved. We moved up the chain of the virus infection. But uh, ju- just before we leave they are ER point, though, I mean, she did have to. I mean, uh, Angela, even though I think Angela probably had the information and was most likely to have this information about why the police wanted to talk to Peter Maitland. That seems the kind of thing that would have gotten around the hospital if nothing else. Why, why the police were trying to talk to this uh, dementia ridden old man. Um, that's where she put the brakes on revealing information to Holly, which then made ha- uh, Holly have to go talk to, you know, f- uh, track down Andy Kikavage again. kick cabbage totally
0: Andy; He's a good um, ad. I'm really happy. They added him to yeah. this mix. Another one of those, like, you know, very lucky that he has like, you know, this in at the police department, but I liked him so much that I'm like, it's cool. I'm glad. I'm glad you're willing to like sit and listen and, and help Holly, like talk this out. We needed someone to kind of yin and yang her. I looked
2: yeah. up the quote he said, my strength is as the strength of ten because my heart is pure. That is Alfred Lord Tennyson in the, in the poem Sir Galahad.
1: Did you think it was uh, rude of Holly to laugh at him? Because he said it with kind of a sincerity about him. I, I couldn't read whether or not he was joking or not when he said it. But Holly definitely took it as amusing because she kind of chuckled at him.
2: Rude, but it was I think it was a counterpoint to her beginning statement about why do people have to tell jokes? (laughs) So then then someone says something sincere and she laughs at that.
0: (laughs) That is funny.
1: funny. So, Caroline, what about Andy? uh, Did you like uh, played by Derek Cecil, by the way. Well,
0: I don't just, know. You know, sometimes you just have kind of like a like a strange little feeling about someone. So his face really like drew me in. I was interested in him right away. I liked how interested he seems in Holly. Now, do I have a little bit of reservations? I actually do because he has a lot of interest and it seems to be going by very quickly. They're, they seem to be kind of falling for each other really quickly. So I'm hoping everything's on the complete up and up. But I think Galahad is is
2: pious and grimly determined, according to
0: Wikipedia. Well, that's good. We want all that? I liked him. I mean, I really did. I I liked how he was willing to listen. And I guess, again, sort of buy in and go along with what the possibilities of this story could be. What about you guys? Did you guys like Andy? Not like Andy. Did you feel like he's possibly playing her? Or is he also a goo Andy? Like, what's the sitch?
2: No, I, I think he genuinely likes her. And is just a decent guy caught up in something that's going to be a big deal. I think he's going to stick with her if this Galahad business is any kind of foreshadowing. I mean, it says, in the end, only Galahad is capable of completing the grail quest while many other knights are killed. I I think that speaks to as long as she lets him hang around, he will be there.
1: I like that. Uh, I liked them too, uh, for the same reason that I liked Holly. I think there's a real open face earnestness and sincerity about them. I don't think there's really any duplicity there, and I really appreciate that about them. And I think that's why they were kind of drawn to each other pretty fast. And she gives them that great awkward big kiss before she goes into her room at the you know, at the end of their little <laughs> date. It was as awkward for her to do as he received it awkwardly, but awkward, not awkward in like a bad way, awkward in like a like a meat cute kind of way. You know, I think I think they're very two kind of peas in a pod.
0: I sincerely hope so. I don't want there to be anything bad I don't want I don't want him to to turn out to be sinister because he is a likable person, you know, and that and that gives you the willies because that's something they touched on in this, especially with Heath. They kept saying, you know it's it's so common to hear that story of I never expected it to be him that doesn't sound like him at all. He's been so nice, my nice neighbor, my nice whatever. That I, I'm a little worried that he is so good and he does seem so nice and he does seem to, to want to be with her. That it makes me a little nervous. I'm a little bit nervous.
2: There are occasional angels in Stephen King's stories. Uh-oh. That's just uncomplicated and good and therefore the protagonist. They may not live through the whole thing, but their motives are pure. And that's not that's not too uncommon in king's work
1: before we move on to the andy the holly dinner which i think is interesting because of the conversation uh did you guys notice the name of the uh of the antique shop that they meet in front of what was the name when, of it? Uh, it was called the heidi hole which <laughs> i don't i don't think has which i don't think has any story lore to it but i think it's a very funny name for an antique store
0: that's the hilarious heidi the heidi hole yeah.
1: <laughs> Uh, what did you guys think of Andy's uh, dinner conversation uh, talking about what happened to the Hofstetter and Williams families following Heath's incarceration? Well,
0: let's talk about that for a second because we didn't really get a chance to break down Heath's story.
1: Well, I mean, the, ep- the, episode, the episode opens with Heath, uh, who we now know is Heath before. I mean, at that point, he was still inmate, but he was inmate, not dead, not with sliced throat, but he was having pancakes and watching a woman dip her toast in a uh, hard-boiled egg or soft-boiled egg, I guess. What did you guys, I actually I had a silly question because this has been a controversy in my life. Uh, pancakes and syrup. Do you guys drown your pancakes in syrup or do you just put a little bit on like it's a, like a drought?
2: I put on quite a bit. Do you have Cracker Barrel up where you are?
1: I, we do. We do have Cracker Barrel.
2: Yeah, I usually need about two more of those syrups <laughs> that they bring you in the little dinky bottles. Not so much that the pancake gets cold, mind you, but definitely a saturated pancake.
0: Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm not a dainty syrup girl. I'm not. I'm not dipping it or anything. I'm definitely drowning it. Lots of butter too. Uh,
1: same for me. Uh, if butter is available, if soft butter that you don't have to like, you know, carve with like a like a hacksaw uh, is available, I like to put that in between layers. And I also drown my pancakes. Um, and I never have to worry about them being cold because I eat extremely fast. <laughs> <So. laughs> nice, your part, goo man. You're like no <laughs> wrong.
2: Never know anyway. when someone's going to come take your cakes.
1: You never know when Goo Man is right around the corner or Goo Man is the woman that you end up fucking. You don't know. Oh you gosh. don't know. Oh you better, gosh. your pancakes may be the last pancakes you ever have. Oh, wow. Um, so, so that's that's how Heath's story is. So we turn. it turns out that he's actually in New York City when he's having those pancakes, we learn. And through the exposition fairy, Angela, she knows all about Heath's travels like Caroline was talking about before. Caroline, did, did you note like all of his travels and the dates that they matched up with Terry?
0: That they matched up with Goo? Is that what you're talking
1: about? Uh, they, well, Yeah, well, they matched up with Terry when he was in Dayton and the murders of the Williams sisters. But before that, when he travels to New York City and he meets that woman, or Maria Canellis at the end. The story revolves, even though Keith is dead, I think that a lot of this episode turned about you know, the life and times of Heath and his travels really in February and March. Yeah.
0: um, Well, I, I mean, I thought it was well done. I thought that they did a good job of revealing each little section. And I mean, obviously our listeners will have watched the show, so we don't have to go through all of it. But I think that the fact that there was these periphery family members that suffered so hard within all of the families, that was like the meat of it for me. Of course, we had the similarities of you know, he was really somewhere else, but he was accused, but we have footage from everywhere. That was the same with Heath, as with Maria, as with Terry. So they all kind of suffered the same fates, if you will, of being accused and yet all this conflicting evidence. But I thought that the the families, all those extra little parts caught my eye more, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, Andy gives a great summation of of at least what happened to Heath and the Williams sisters' uh, families. We actually have the audio clip I mean, first was Hofstetter's mother then his brother, those poor Williams sisters. Their grandfather had a fatal stroke that same day. Their mother tried to poison herself a few days after. Uh, She was on life support for about a month.
2: They finally decided to pull the plug. It was like a plague. His story seemed to really bring home this idea of, of the goo entity possibly creating a cloud of malevolence around yeah. him because the trail of destruction he leaves is not a coincidence, I don't think. Total families just being erased as a result of a single killing is it's a big deal.
0: Well, and especially, we had talked about this in the last episode, actually, with, with you guys. I thought that when we were, I was referencing that conversation between Mrs. Anderson and glory and would grief continue to be a motivator for anyone in the story and i didn't i didn't know where this was going and we had all bounced that around with like maybe ralph's maybe whatever but now it turns out that goo man is motivated by grief he wants grief like he craves grief and the way that you can have one innocent person killed and have someone innocent accused and the waves of grief that that creates, this is a whole different story than we may have even thought and and very interesting.
1: I I actually thought it was a nice dovetailing of both of your kind of prevailing theories. You know, I think from episode one, Paul really put out the idea of the malevolence cloud, that anger was being fueled by his presence uh, when we saw angry situations. And then last week, you definitely talked about um, the grief aspect of it. And it seems at least if we're if we're to take the end conversation from this episode at its face, that is very much true. You know, he sows discontent and then snacks on it. Um, so I think I think both of you were on the right track kind of speaking, you know, to two sides of the same coin.
0: It's scary how something can happen to one person in the family and how it does spread like wildfire. The way that, you know, the brother OD'd for Heath and the mom was just beside herself and, you know, basically drove into a pole. And then on the other side of the family, you know, the mom poisoning herself and the grandfather having a heart attack and um well,
1: poisoning herself and then being on life support for a month yeah. talk about a lingering horrible you know slow death
0: well and for all the people who i'm sure came to visit her like if you were snacking on grief wow you just you have like a buffet sitting here and every time someone comes they can be sad and you can like l- you know lap up that grief and then have them go away like it would last a while
1: what did you guys think about watching mrs hofstetter get in her car very deliberately drive down the road and continuing to pick up speed and then uh, drive into to the pole It it was really hard to watch. Like, I felt like it was something you knew was going to happen somehow. It was going to Mm -hmm. end poorly. What did you guys think about that? As soon as I
2: saw uh, her leave the house in, like, her house coat or whatever she was wearing uh, and just haphazardly just get in the car and go, I knew what was happening at that
0: point. Well, let's back up for one second. What happened right before that happened was that it appeared that one of the investigating and or collecting evidence people showed her a shoebox with little girl's underwear in it that were bloody. Mm -hmm. And that is what prompted her to basically stand up and walk out and like can't handle anymore. That is a level that goo man is extra freaking evil.
1: What makes it even more heartbreaking in her case is that Heath, real Heath, was with her the entire time. So talk about, I just don't think my son could do this kind of thing is very different than I know my son didn't do this thing. He was with me.
0: You would lose it really, really fast. Because right. I think if, if, if everyone could show you that you, what you perceived as reality was completely wrong, you could trust yourself. Like, no, it has to. I mean, I know what I saw. I know what happened. And yet, no, they're showing you all this other evidence. I think you would just think, I like, I'm in some sort of insane asylum right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I want to backtrack to Holly with Peter Maitland, Terry's dad.
2: Yeah. Because yeah. I thought that was, I thought that we was We skipped really... that a little bit.
1: So, among Holly's uh, information dump that she gets from, you know, uh, receptionist Angela is that Heath covered Peter Maitland's room, which we kind of knew already, or at least suspected, but this was definitely confirmed. You know, the the way the room assignments work. So, when Angela lets her into the hospital, she makes a beeline for Peter Maitland's room, and they have a really interesting conversation. I was curious what you guys thought about his conversation and about. The things he was saying beforehand, before we get to his big reveal, his moment of clarity. I was curious what you guys thought about his kind of ramblings before then.
0: I couldn't decide if they were meant to test her, like see if she got upset and walked out. But because she like had the fortitude to continue to stand there and continue to take this sort of like veiled harassment, it made me feel like. Again, she kind of proved herself and was like worthy of the information, whereas nine out of 10 people, if you just said those first couple lines about didn't your husband give you a sharp smack would just turn on their heel and be like, I don't need to put up with this shit. Like this guy is freaking me out at this point. Um, but she hangs in. And so long as she hangs in, she gets the info. Uh,
1: I, I kind of agree. Um, the, the smack comment also twinged at the back of my brain about that he has a violent past this guy. You know, remember we learned last week, he's got that assault record from 1985. It was very violent imagery because then he follows it up with his wife setting the bed on fire. Yeah. So Peter Maitland is not an angel. He is not one of Stephen King's angels. It does not seem. <laughs> but then we, we do get that moment of uh, clarity from him. And we have that audio clip. It wasn't him, you know. Wasn't who?
2: You know. He really did fool all of you, didn't
1: he? So, what did you guys think was the significance of his, uh, you know, and then he says that he had you all fooled?
2: Now, legitimately, this is a part I do not remember from the book, so this is an honest guess. I think he knows something that, but only because he observed it, not because he was like involved in it. I don't think he was like a goo carrier or anything
1: like that. You, I think you don't think he was... maybe gave up his son? Uh, hmm. Should maybe suggested to goo Heath to take my my goo to my my Terry instead of me? That's a good question.
0: Like a sacrifice?
1: Uh, like I'm a piece of shit, and I'd rather I'd rather you take my son, who I don't really care about, who only comes to visit me periodically when he's in town. Uh, versus me, so I can keep watching my cooking shows at very full volume.
2: That's a that's a pretty nasty theory, but no, I think it's just more of an observer. But but that's a that's a good that's a good second place theory for in my own head. Um, <laughs> I'll take second place. I don't think the the Alzheimer's bit is is an act. I think he's not with it ninety nine percent of the time, and wheeling and dealing would kind of imply that. No, nah, actually, it's an act. He he is with it most of the time.
0: Well, and what do we think plays into the fact that he supposedly had this, you know, major decline after March? What do we think? Do we have any more clues as to what or why that would have happened or if that's even real?
1: Well, that was kind of what played into the decline, the rapid decline of the Alzheimer's, whether or not he sold out his son or not. It it definitely made me think that he was clued into Goo Heath uh, on that March 5th, 6th time frame when Terry was around, when the girls were killed that that he gets convicted from, he had some significant conversation or interaction with the goo character, which changed him for the worse. And so it made me wonder what these kinds of comments about the poker and the bed on fire and the smackin', if maybe that was actually more of who who Peter Maitland actually was before his decline.
0: Do you guys think that we will have any kind of like watch this scene again from someone else's point of view where we had like the janitor watching and we saw like heath walking down the hall and i I believe i'm saying this right and terry comes out of the room that's the combination Mm -hmm. do you think Mm -hmm. that we'll see it again like in some sort of i'm not sure exactly how but from maybe peter's point of view or like we find out why terry was kind of rushing out of the room or anything like that because in other shows we watch we definitely would be like hey, remember that scene? Let's look at it from the other person's point of view. Is that even possible in this story? Or do you think, no way, we're not going to be able to figure that out?
1: I, I do. I think the show has already shown. I mean, we, we had just a callback to the first episode with the, with the Claude and the handshake. Um, I think the show is very much, has revealed itself to, re, to one, reward the viewer for paying attention to all the interactions because you may see it from a different way. But like we got to see the janitor's point of view about the fall and interaction between Terry and Heath Like maybe there's a window
0: washer outside or something that's going to show it from like another angle or something.
1: Or that we revisit Peter Maitland again and we get his take on the conversation that caused it. Because Terry was kind of rushing out of that room. I I thought so. He seemed
0: kind of like, you know, something like where you would have had words with your dad and you just kind of like stalked off like, God, you know. And that's how it kind of came Mm -hmm. off to me, which maybe Mm -hmm. Glory was in the room. Maybe that's something that Ralph or Holly is going to come back and be able to talk to her. Maybe we can see it from her point of view. Because we don't know who else was in the room.
2: The show has, has trusted the viewers to be able to stay up with the conversation through time jumps in the narrative, revealing past, present, at the same time and and just trusting that we'll get it. So the idea of shifting perspective and displaying that sometime later, I think that that's well within the rules for, for the way this show is built.
1: Uh, I agree. I mean, this episode alone had two significant time displacements. You know, that opening scene with Heath was a time displacement, as it turned out. And then the end scene with the Mr. Magoo's bar and the guy in the church and then he shoots the guy. Right. Uh, Exactly. That turns out that that was, you know, late March when that happened. In the in the time frame of the show and we're we're, you know, late two thousand nineteen when this is taking well, place. Well, especially so. that's
0: true because like in my own brain I'm trying to like rack about like how could we get to be told it if like if not from one of our main characters? But no, like you said, like the, the shooting happens completely with characters we don't follow. So, and they were willing right. to show us that. And that wasn't any big deal or felt odd or anything like that.
1: What did you guys think? Because I, I, I took a little victory lap with this. Just like you guys were right about the grief and the malevolence. Angela points out that when she ran into Heath in the hallway on the day that he wasn't supposed to be at work because he was on vacation, he nodded at her. And she even says, as, as if he didn't know who I am. Yep, you were dead
0: uh, on about that. He definitely didn't.
1: Because, I mean, that was that was one of the things we picked up in the Terry scenes with, you know, Willow Rainwater and with uh, Claude, the way he doesn't actually refer to anyone except for his victim by name. You know, he's very impersonal. So his limited research, maybe because he can't read too well. <laughs> yeah, um, so his the extent <laughs> of his Google research is limited when he goes to scout. I wonder
0: Town. if your goo fingers can't so, do Google that good. That's hard Google. to say. I said goo fingers that's, can't that's do Google that good. That's hard, that, you guys.
2: That's a lot of goo in that's one a sentence. a
0: lot of goo in one
1: sentence. I, I wanted to ask your guys' opinion because I wasn't sure – if you had thought about this, but I was watching the episode today, have you noticed the title card sequence when it dissolves into the title card sequence? Yes,
0: I've noticed it, the it title looks, card when it dissolves, yes.
1: It looks like the goo. I think the title card sequence is the goo spreading. Ah. Okay, I like that. Look at, if you go back to the barn, uh, the way the goo was kind of moving around on the clothes and dripping on the clothes in the barn, and then they took it last week and they did like the forensics, because when they proved that it wasn't a semen Uh, a semen sock, a cum sock, and they put it under the microwave, the the microscope, the way the patterns looked and moved and stuff looked very similar to the dissolve on the card sequence. I think the title card sequence is goo.
0: Nice. I totally believe that. Definitely Maria in this last one, when her face kind of changes a little bit and then it just completely dissolves off, like that felt very Mm -hmm. much like it was passing from one person, or at least the concept of passing to him was right there. Okay, so speaking of Maria, um, let's talk about her story a little bit. We have to head to Rikers Island because it turns out that the virus most likely we're calling it the murder virus spread from Maria to Heath to Terry.
1: So Maria Cadellis, age 26, is convicted and is doing time in jail at Rikers for the murder of a seven year old named uh, Luke Aparizio. The problem is that much like Heath and much like Terry, uh, Maria was in Newark at the time that she was convicted of the murders, hanging out with her cousin who got it all on videotape. Another one who has lucky. actually really good evidence, very lucky. really good evidence about where she was and yet did not prevent her from being convicted. Um, not only that, you guys but she works about- at a
0: hotel, which would also have excellent security footage.
1: Well, the murder, though, happened in the same town. Well, it happened in the Bronx and she worked in Manhattan. So I don't know. Well, it would depend on when the timing of the murders happened. But being that close to the scene of the crime. I don't know that that would work, but being in Newark, Newark is sufficiently far away from the Bronx when something is happening at the same time, as I would think to be really good evidence to not convict on. But what do you guys think? Does this, does this make you worry about the legal system Yes. that you can literally be shown in a different place across the country and still be convicted of a horrible, horrible murder? Yes,
2: uh, yes. I would hope for a, a Johnny Cochran level representation. Doesn't matter,
0: babe. To... This all happens right before you don't even go anywhere. Nothing happens to you like you don't like these people were not convicted necessarily and got to the end of the line. Like, look at Terry. He didn't even get to go say whether he was guilty or not.
1: Well, look at Heath too. I mean, Heath was convicted, but ended up taking his own life. He ends up dead, you know? So it's inter- it's an interesting question of why is Maria still alive? You know, she seems to be the only one who survived the gooing and is still around to talk about it.
2: Well, she's tough. She went in a uh, normal person into prison and kind of knew the rules. And and sounds like she is fending for herself okay. It's a shame that that a person who doesn't belong in prison would have to go through that. And if she ever manages to get out, that she would have been vastly changed as a result.
1: Yes, I think that's true. And I mean, I think I definitely believe her when she credits growing up with all of the men in her life, all of whom were, and she actually says no angels. Uh, She does not say no Stephen King angels, but she says no angels um, (laughs) that she can handle herself. But I'm going to go back to my tinfoil theory. Uh, She makes a point for really no reason to say that up until the point she went to jail, she took her grandmother to church every single Sunday. And, you know, she makes a point of saying that as long as she keeps Jesus and God, you know, close to her, she knows that nothing can hurt her. Mm. This is is, is the claw defense. This is why the gooing didn't didn't take her life. Uh, And why I think Claude, again,
0: goes back
1: to why I think think Claude wasn't taken over. I think he's got a (laughs) purity of spirit. uh, I
0: don't have a purity of spirit. Shoot! I'm going to get scratched. I'm going to get scarfed. And then all of a sudden I'm going to turn into a goo person. Or, you know, not even turn into a goo person. Just be accused of heinous crimes that I can't seem to explain. Ugh, curses! It all comes back to church.
2: Yeah, they'd come to me and they'd say, do you think, Caroline, we could kill somebody? I said, then I'd be like, well, who are you saying she <laughs> killed?
0: Yeah, <laughs> she cut a bitch.
2: <laughs> right. Oh, her? Mm, that's a maybe.
0: <laughs> Definitely. For
1: sure. Were you guys surprised when we saw, when we finally got to see who Maria Canellis was? Because Holly, Holly has the name from the blotter from February before we see the picture in the article. Were you guys like, that's the woman from the opening Did, was that was actually. Caroline you? actually
2: put it together about a half second before she was on screen. That's great. She, yeah, she started to say, that's the woman from the beginning. And then we saw her face, and it was the woman from the beginning.
1: So let's talk about the timeline real quick here, because the postcard Heath sends Angela, conveniently, the, the Deuce Ec Machina mm-hmm. postcard that he sends right. her, um, is dated on February 10th, which is the day before my birthday. Not that that's relevant to anything. But the murder, though, is reported of the little boy on February nineteenth, so presumably it happened like the eighteenth or the nineteenth, so she bones Heath with the pancake sex, and then a week later kills the boy, but then passes off the gooness to Heath, who is not yet no, or, not pass, I don't even know not if passes he
0: actually, it he she she
1: becomes him or
0: whatever. yeah, transforms into right. Heath, yes.
1: So, so when they're having sex though, you know, she scratches him and we see the blood running down his back. So there was like a week in between there, presumably, unless, unless that wasn't the same day, maybe, maybe the sexy time happened closer to when she killed the boy and then had a beat feet out of town in her new heat suit. But it's interesting how they're, they're paying really good attention to laying out the timeline. Like you can definitely mark on a calendar, all of these events. So I, I think it's actually a really nice detail how they're laying it out there. If you're, if you're willing to pay attention and, and put the dates together, there is a definite timeline here. Well,
0: that's why um, I was wondering about Claude, because that's what I said. I said, well, maybe he doesn't have to transform right away. Maybe there's some period of time he can keep your DNA around and nothing happens right away.
1: Well, yes, but he seemed he got scratched, right? Which was consistent with when Terry would have wanted to start getting out of town because the murder that he committed was gonna was gonna break which was consistent with how maria did heath but nothing happened to him and it seems that the goo man has moved on to jack
0: well maybe i'm not convinced that that's the truth not in terms of that it's the same way in terms of that he's going to become an accused murderer of somebody like i think he's using him in a way different way i don't because like you said he he was possessable and all that stuff I don't know. I just feel like maybe he can put your DNA in a jar and, like, save it for later or whatever. I don't know. I don't know when the expiration date is on your scratch. And I'm kind of saying, like, maybe it's a little longer than we think. Maybe he does use Jack Next, but then maybe he still has got clot around. I don't know.
2: I think it's probably more animal. Like, it's got to follow sort of like a cocoon, pupating stage and all that. So there's some amount of time of transition that occurs then the goo thing gets to be a very defined version of the of the copy for some period of time. It starts to wear off. They got to find another thing. Then they go do that for a little while after transitioning, however long that takes. But it sounds like you only get to be fully formed goo facsimile for like a week, maybe? Couple,
1: two weeks tops, it, it yeah. kind of sounds like. Somewhere uh, there. It, and it's about in, about a month incubation period, it seems like, right? Because the boy gets killed. Well, she scratches Heath uh, on February 10th. He kills the Williams sisters on March 6th. That That's just about a month time, somewhere between three and four weeks from when he got scratched to when he killed. Uh, we don't know when Maria was scratched or attacked or whatever, but she killed on the 18th. So presumably sometime in late January, she would have gotten scratched.
0: Do you guys, do we can continue this pattern of trying to figure out where Maria could have been to get scratched? Do we continue this backtracking of the virus or does this go a different direction?
1: How far up the chain does this go? Does this go all the way to the president?
0: Well, I'm kind of wondering, do we just, do we continue the pattern? Do we, it's like, okay, now we got to go and figure out where Maria was and we got to go ask her things and we got to go figure out. I know we went and talked to her, but we didn't get a lot of good info, but... Will this be like another? You know, give it some more information. Go ask some other people.
2: I think it's enough to know that there's a pattern, mm-hmm. and that's about it.
0: We don't get to know
1: um, next. I,
2: yeah, so two, I don't think. I don't think so.
1: Two identifies the trend. Three confirms the pattern. You know, that's that's the kind of classic trope, right? Now having the whole Baba Yaga, Boogeyman, Coco thing, I think that's the answer she was kind of searching for that she's going to go back home with. Okay, so
0: let's talk I, about I think- that. So we have the Cuban woman in the jail, pay attention to her, and drop mm-hmm. the note, and then all of a sudden we're in the Cuban woman's apartment. What do we think about this? What do we think about another just sort of like a she-an-angel, perhaps, who's been dropped in on us for some information?
1: An exposition fairy, as it was. Uh, by yeah. the way, before we get too far, I- IMDb identifies her as Idalis Castro, as being the character's mm-hmm. name, played by Susanna Guzman. So IMDb has been changing names. Uh, after an episode is aired. But for right now, anyway, that's uh, Idolis Castro uh, is who she's being. Identified.
2: Something reminded me uh, about her of the Oracle from the Matrix.
1: She looked just like her, but it's not. I looked at her for that exact reason, because I thought she looked very much like the Oracle from the Matrix.
0: Well, so what do we think about her? Where did she come from? Why has she just fallen into our lap? And what do we think of the information, information she shared?
2: She kind of, in Holly's very open mind, expanded maybe even what she was willing to consider with this talk of God and devils and that sort of thing, kind of bringing the idea that maybe there are devils that walk the earth. Uh, she didn't spell it out like that, but she very much implied that. And also this idea of the grief-eating, shape-shifting Devil is enough to give get her going on this track where maybe she can start to figure that out because it's going to obviously fit in like a like a pretty good puzzle piece, given what she already knows. It's just that's going to be a really hard sell.
0: I think that I liked the way that they walked us through, like, do you believe in God? Yes, you believe in God. Okay, so if you believe in God, then do you believe in the devil? And she kind of, like, paused, and then she was like, well, I guess if I believe in God, then I guess I do believe in the devil. Like, I feel like they were leading the audience, you know, like – we can all agree where you believe in there's a God, right? And then you just kind of walk us down the line because a lot of people would say, no, I don't believe in demons and devils and stuff like that. But they kind of handheld us.
2: It was kind of funny about that is that in the book, Holly is an atheist and they make a point of saying that in the book. So it's funny that they make a point of saying that in the show, that, it's, that she
1: believes in God. Hmm. I thought it was interesting in that conversation about the devil. She says, so I think I do. And then she says, no, I do. She, she catches herself and she, she makes an affirmative. No, I, I do believe in the devil. It caught my attention only because of the conversation last week uh, that she had with Ralph when she first meets Ralph. And uh, he he questions why she is couching the doppelganger theory as an if. And she, you know, she goes on that rant to him about uh, of all the things she's been through in life. And so she chooses to, to couch it as an if that's kind of her prerogative so it was interesting in this conversation, she catches herself using the if and actually makes it a definitive statement on what she believes. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I thought it was an interesting contrast uh, that here she actually took that step.
0: That's cool. I like it. OK, so in last episode, Holly brought up the concept of myth with the doppelganger. That's what you were bringing up. And the Cuban woman has so much more to say about this. What did you guys think about all of this again walking us through like what did your parents say to you when you were supposed to go to sleep or what do you tell your own kids about you know something's going to come get you if you don't go to sleep did you feel like they did a good job of like easing us into the idea of like let's talk about the cultural handing down of a boogeyman
1: i like i liked it a lot because i think i think it's something that definitely is something kids are brought up to think about and believe or it's something they're told whether or not they believe it but I don't know that we spend a lot of time thinking about why we do it. And I thought that was really the thrust of this conversation. You know, don't, you know the thrust of the conversation was that this is something that parents tell their children when they, you know, to keep them from misbehaving. But the Cuban woman or idolist, Miss Castro, she, she makes the point to say that we've turned truth into fairy tales. So do you guys believe that the, of the idea that there is some kind of soul out there uh, or some kind of creature out there that will come get you? Um, The cocoa will come eat you if you don't behave. Is that something you guys grew up with? I don't know in the south that that's something that you guys grow up with uh, telling no, children.
2: No, I've not heard that one. But my parents are Catholic, so they have other kind of boogie <laughs> creatures to <laughs> test your wits with. What about you, Caroline?
0: I, my parents definitely did not need to do one damn thing to scare me. I was scared all the time anyway. So had they layered on a boogeyman, like out of their own lips, Jesus Christ, I would never sleep again. So no, they definitely did not do that with me. I think they do it in other ways, you know, and parents definitely do the be good because Santa Claus is watching you or be good because God's watching you or that kind of stuff. But not in my culture or my growing up did we go the other way and say, be good, otherwise an evil thing's watching you is going to hurt you. That was never anything that was said to me. Did someone say that to you, Mike?
1: Uh, no, I mean, I grew up with the idea of the boogeyman is someone who punishes bad kids, but not because it was told to me as a, like, threat from my parents. My parents, you know, were barely around. I don't know that they would have known if I had misbehaved or not, but, um, but it was something that I was aware of as a kid.
0: I guess as just, like, an entity, right? I mean, because we all know the concept of the boogeyman for sure. I don't know that in my contract of the boogeyman... That had anything to do with your behavior i guess it was more random than that um which makes him that much more scary like you don't have any control he could come get you if he wants to come get you so i guess that's what makes him scary to me um which is basically what she says like joke is on everybody because being good doesn't actually keep you safe
1: uh i i want to i want to just point out because I, I did a little bit of research the little song the, it sounds like a, a hush little baby, don't say a word, mom's going to buy you a mockingbird. That little tune that Miss Castro sings but uses the Spanish words is sleep child, sleep now, else cocoa comes and will eat you is the English translation. And it's actually a the oldest known rhyme related to El Coco. And it actually dates back to the 17th century.
0: Good Lord.
1: Yeah, it was actually, it was uh, written by a man named Juan Caxas. What is wrong with us arginated. wanting to
0: wig out our kids like that?
1: originated in the 17th century so you know parents have been you know threatening their children with you know literally the boogeyman for 400 years uh <laughs> I, I think the more interesting part of the castro conversation and we talked about this a little bit was caroline's idea of the grief eater uh we actually have uh miss castro's conversation about that here because it is also known as el gloton para dolor, the grief eater it takes the child itself but after it likes to linger because it craves the pain of the ones left behind. If the child is its meal, the suffering of the family is its dessert. So do you think we're going to continue to see the grief eater at play here? Is, is Glory part of the grief eater? Is he going to come get her or drive her to madness at some point where she either hurts herself or the kids? Is Glory on the, is on the grief eater train?
2: Once Goo creature takes its new form i think it will probably want to get out of there i think that's probably the way it operates that's i mean all these uh previous hosts if that's the right word are kind of spread out uh, it, it, the pattern would be that it should move on it shouldn't really worry itself with making glory miserable but I mean, he's he's hanging around in his goo form at this point, so maybe maybe he's 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 found something particularly delicious grief-wise that it, that he wants to stick around
1: for. Well, he's also got the side grief too. I mean, and Jack, with his proximity to Ralph, you know, Ralph has health, and his uh, Ralph and his wife Jeannie have this side grief over Derek, which you know we talked about last week a lot is still being worked out. So there's definitely some dessert left to be had, I think, in Cherokee City of related grief to to what happened here with Terry to, to be snacked on. So I don't I don't know. I don't know that we're done yet. What do you think? I Caroline? don't
0: think we're done. I think that I think that the way that they're piling on this stuff with Glory, I was joking them when I said we were outraged last week about the getting kicked out of school. But I also wasn't joking. We were. And that was a huge slap in the face for her. And so then pile on top of that, having people try to. Um, lie to you and come into your home and what if she didn't catch that situation and she would have allowed someone in her home who is really writing stories about her and her family that invasion of privacy after you have you know your husband die like this that's like a whole nother level of grief and even though she caught the situation i don't think that makes it not impactful the the just the thought that this woman could have been in my home i could have had her sit with my children every day and she could have been someone who is you know, not looking out for our best interests. I, I think that Gloria has so much more grief to be had. The town itself is abusing her on some level. You know, she, she's still going through, not just the death of her husband, like we really haven't seen her just sit and cry about Terry. She's not sitting around being like, I miss him so much, this is so hard. You know, how do I pay the bills? You know, we're not seeing that no. happen. We're seeing like outside people injecting more on her shoulders. And we're seeing her try to stay strong through that. I think eventually she could really snap.
1: I think you're right. I think we've definitely, I think she definitely has the fortitude to be able to take care of her family, if not for the fact that she was being bombarded from the outside. And not that she can't take care of her family, but you know, but you're right. Other than last week when she got a little teary talking about just how good a dad Terry was and how he was able to deal with the kids' fears in a way that that she's not really able to deal with them. But I, I agree with you. There's only so far someone can bend before they break. And I, I think that's what Glory's story is right now. I think we're we're pushing her to see how far her grief will bend her before she Here's breaks. Here's the other
0: thing. I think that by telling us that in Heath's story, that all these people passed away on Heath's side of the family, as well as the victim side of the family, so far in the Terry story, we only have Frankie's family having passed yep. away. But... If your goal uh, is to have point. that like both sides experience this massive loss, we only have Terry gone. So you still got Glory and both girls waiting to be snatched, basically. I think there's still however you want to look at it, like food on the buffet over there or fuel for the fire, whatever. But there's too many Maitland girls standing for a for goo man to walk.
1: And who has been in contact with one of those Maitland girls, mm-hmm. you know, and has been actively, actively involved in her life, even post their father being you know, or, or being killed. Um, but that's actually a nice segue, though, in family members left standing that I, I wanted to, as we start to wrap up, back to Maria, you know, when she's she's relating how she has survived in jail when she put the bitches in line. Um, but she she relates the story that we had been seeing starting to play out, but didn't know how it connected. Uh, it turns out Mr. Aparizio, the father of the little boy who was killed by Goo Maria, walks into Magoo's, Mr. Magoo's bar in the Bronx, which is actually a real place. Um, you can go online and see pictures. It's actually pretty cool. He ends up taking out a gun and shooting uh, Maria's father and uncle dead right there. Very Godfather style right there in the thing, but then sits down himself. And I, I did you guys expect him to kill himself? When he sat down, I did. I, I was surprised that he did not. I was curious what you guys thought.
0: I think it would have been very logical for him to do that, and and the way that the you know the scene ended. But you know there could be more. I'm not ruling out that something you know more didn't happen in that moment. But I think just that idea that the way that uh, you know I I don't want to say a simple happening, but like it like the death of innocence completely fuels like revenge and rage in people in a way that and and humiliation for like the mom with um, like Heath's mom seeing bloody little girl underwear like the humil- the humiliation the heartbreak the everything that comes with it is so overwhelming and it's like all you have to do is hit that first domino you just have to kill that first person and watch as like eight to 10 other people like take it upon themselves to lose it it's fascinating
1: um yeah no i think it's fascinating but i, I, I like you i'm curious if we're done because he's still standing but Uh, most importantly, Maria, the kind of center, the eye of that particular storm is still standing. Mm -hmm. So it it makes you wonder if if we're actually done with that story. And then the other reason I had a question mark, and I was curious about this, and what you thought of this was, Holly says to her, do you know who did it? If it wasn't you, who do you think did it? And she hesitates in such a way that Holly says, you do know who did it. And Maria says that she can't say the name because she'll get thrown in the psych ward. Um, You know, we have this audio clip here.
2: Do you have any idea who did?
1: Let's go, let's wrap it up.
2: You know, don't you?
1: If I say his
2: name, they will send me right from here to a mental hospital. Maria, please let me help you. You can't help me. No one can. Because what he
0: does can never be undone.
1: So she says, uh, what. what he does can never be undone. What What did you guys think that meant? And do you think she's talking about the boogeyman or an actual person?
0: I was thinking she's talking about like the devil, like you know Beelzebub, whatnot. And that's why she yeah. gets
1: thrown in the psych ward if that's who she said yeah. did it. Yeah, because you know? I think yeah. if you
0: said a person's name, no one's putting in the psych ward, but if you say the devil did it, I think that's a good way to get the yellow card.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah, I saw it the same way.
0: How about you, Mike? What do you think?
1: Uh, I think that's right. I, I think after the you know, because then we have the the boogeyman conversation comes after that and so that that made more sense to me but just the way she kind of she looked at her it almost felt like she had a actual name of someone that was maybe too crazy to be believable because okay. she she was infected by someone and we don't know who infected her but you could see where maybe she with a lot of time in her hands is thinking that that person is responsible for whatever has happened to her Intrigue. now. So I think I think the takeaway after all of said and done in the episode was that she was talking about the devil. But I, a little part of me <laughs> is still curious that she was talking about an actual So, person. okay,
0: so predictions wise, where do we head from here? Like we knew that we had been given that little nugget that Heath was most likely the person who had been the link in the chain. And then now we got Maria. So you guys are thinking we're not continuing to go back and continue to find more links? Because if not, where do we go from here?
2: Well, I think she heads back to Georgia and starts compiling all this stuff into a cohesive thought because i don't think she's going to go down to georgia and be like so it's a it's a devil it's, it's, el a, coco. <laughs> it's a
0: bad news guys it's we've got grief. an el coco on our hands
2: right the technical term is boogeyman That's, do you know that we're the we're baba yaga from.
1: do you right. know <laughs> have you seen the boogeyman
0: <laughs> well so where does it go so she goes we we have an episode where she's like compiling notes she's like
2: Yeah, and at the same time, I think we're going to see that Ralph is maybe not ready to believe or come out and say it, but he's starting to add up little things like his scratch on Claude or whatever that he thinks are just amounting to something unexplainable, which is something he can't deal with.
1: And affirmatively does not like. He does not like the unexplainable. He was very clear about that last week.
2: Right. Really, who
0: does? Are there a lot of people who are like, like, you know what I love? The unexplainable. Not that many people.
1: Uh, I mean, I think Robert Stack was very much into the Unsolved Mysteries. But we were trying to figure
0: it system. out, though. We weren't We weren't happy they were unsolved. Was we he, were watching it to figure it out. Was he trying to
1: figure it out? Was he trying to figure I was. it out though, the or did he just was. want to Weren't wear it? A...
0: We? Weren't we all supposed did... to be trying to figure it out?
1: Or did he just like wearing trench coats? I don't know that Robert Stack was on the side of the angels. i not that sure that, one, but <laughs> why do trench
0: coats? Why are they the key to figuring out mysteries anyway? Well,
1: I mean, ask Columbo. I mean, there's a there's a well documented history of a good trench coat uh, helping inspire.
0: Oh, I'm aware. I'm curious of the power of the trench coat. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's what Holly needs to go get, or Ralph, go get a trench coat, and then we'll bust this case right wide open.
1: Uh, The key prediction wise, I agree with Paul that I think Holly heads back to Georgia and the story continues from there, because I think we need to now start to really dig into what's going to happen to Jack. I think Jack is the next keg to explode in the story. You know, for the last three two episodes, we've gotten a little bit more and a little bit more of him. Um, But I think we also need to take stock of where we are with characters and their interactions with El Coco. You know, it seems to me there's three categories so far of interactions. There is the scratch, the the scratch that doesn't affect you for, you know, we're, which for right now, anyway, let's put Claude in that. Scratch, but no effect. Uh, we have scratched and you get a goo face doppelganger. And then we have the jack category of stabbed in the neck, rash, somehow being controlled and or possessed. Uh, And doing the bidding of Goo Man.
0: I'm giving another category, which I'm going to say is, is aware of the existence of Goo Man. I'll put like Jessa and Peter in that category of like, I'm aware there's a Goo Man out there, but he hasn't tried to necessarily take my soul yet.
1: Uh, I think that's a fair category. I'm curious if you guys want to put on tinfoil hats with me and put bets on what lands you in a certain category if there if there is a rhyme or reason to what lands you in a certain category what do you think lands you in a certain category
2: well i think uh drawing blood puts you in the category of complete copy
1: uh i was thinking more uh, well yes i think that's probably right i was thinking more what about you attracts the goo man to you versus someone else maybe that he leaves alone what puts you on the goo man's list i guess Hmm. If you think there is anything. Is there something about Terry Maitland and Heath Hofstetter and Maria Canellis that made them targets for the goo man?
2: Well, they seem to have happy, normal lives, you know, where they were in. I don't know about Heath so much, but kind of, yeah, Heath. Uh, where you were in, they were involved with their family. There would be people that would miss them, people that would grieve for the disaster in their lives.
0: They were all sort of like caretaking type of
2: people, yeah. too.
0: Like Maria working at a hotel. She's like taking care of people. You have Heath, the nurse. You have Terry being like the little league coach. Like they're all like looking out for other people. They all seem to have a good heart.
1: Right. I don't, they all seem to have a good heart, though it's possible you could say, we don't know about Maria. We don't know about Heath, but at least Maria and Terry maybe have questionable relatives in their family fair
0: well and perhaps Heath because I mean the the brother the brother was a heroin drugs yep that's true so maybe he was involved in some sort of sketchy business hard to know
1: versus maybe a Jack who even before being attacked by the goo man did not seem to be of the best heart and character and so seems to have gotten a different kind of much more personal prolonged uh, relationship with with the goo man it seems
0: but if you think about who he picks Jack doesn't have all these people who would grieve for him From what we have seen. There's no wife. There's no kids. There's no family. There's no big love on Jack. And so maybe he's not a good candidate for the true takeover because he he really doesn't fit the rest of the group.
1: Uh, Or maybe he is a corruptible spirit. He's not going to fill the grief buffet that the goo man likes, Mm -hmm. but he is a corruptible spirit and so will be a good vessel to do his bidding for a while.
0: Definitely go collect up his camping supplies because somebody's got to go get that shit. Yeah. What what about the s'mores? <laughs> Do you think goo people would eat marsh marshmallows like totally s'mores? Or would that be like eating your own skin? Like I think that you know
2: when you're at a campfire and the bag of marshmallows comes out and the and the box the graham crackers and the chocolate and all that and in your head you're like I want to eat all of this but you know that you have to share with all the other jerks around you so you like make your one s'more. And then someone comes over and, and, and makes two at the same time. You're like, I didn't know that that was that was okay. And so the next time you you, you go back and you're like making two or whatever. I bet the goo guy campfire side would be like five, you know, the whole steaks stick going covered. at the same time with marshmallows. <laughs> Just a complete pig.
1: And also stole your sleeping bag while you were making s'mores. Right, he's got a little lamp set up by your sleeping bag.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he just poured like he just poured some water in there, so everyone thinks you pissed the sleeping bag.
1: Motherfucker put a stand-up lamp, a floor lamp, in (laughs) you know next to your sleeping bag.
0: What the dick was that? What what could he be using this stand-up floor like, the torchy as we all had in college? I'm
1: still sticking to my building an al- alibi story. I think that makes more sense. That's my tinfoil, oh. my tinfoil theory for the week.
0: <laughs> funny. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been Caroline with Daily Review.
1: Paul with Daily Review. And Mike from Pop Culture. Thanks. See you next week. All right. Bye. See you later. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production.